No, 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 not rent free. You, I will send you a bill at some point. <laughs> You're gonna send me a ticky for the rent yeah. that I <laughs> the rent I have to pay for living in your head. It's Friday, September the 10th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Foul-Mouthed Antipodean Foul Correspondent, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Tweede Kamer Motion Bomber. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> uh, we'll come to that. I, I want to talk about yours because it's far more interesting. Um, oh. th- this, 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 yeah, this is in the sense of... Uh, I've, I've heard of photobombing, obviously, where people sort of... Uh, yeah. you, well, we know what photobombing is. Uh, but uh, this week, you managed to get... Actually, mentioned, you managed to kind of break into somebody else's um, motion in Parliament, which is uh, incredible. Uh, so I, th- yeah. I think you need to explain to, to the listeners exactly what happened, how you came to it be was mentioned a bit in a parliamentary unreal, debate. Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise. <laughs> no, I, I think it was um, at the uh, Functie Elders debate on April first, uh, the first time I noticed this. Yeah. Uh, there was a uh, they were voting on something, and you know usually they do it along party lines, but sometimes they uh, do a roll call and uh, uh, name every MP, and they have to vote individually. Uh, so I was, it, I think it was like two thirty in a, in a, uh, in the middle of the night or something. So I was, uh, 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 yeah, almost asleep in front of the television, and then they started to name all these MPs. And it turned out uh, there was an MP whose last name is Paul. Marielle Paul. Is a, Marielle Paul. Yeah. And there is uh, an MP who's uh, who's called René Peters. Mm. And in the alphabetical order, they come right after each other. So yeah. they were calling the names, and all of a sudden, I heard Paul. Yes. Peters, yes, and I was, and I woke up. I, I like, you did oh, throw you back are, at school. Are they calling my name? <laughs> yeah, I thought they were calling my name. Um, uh, and it turned out that very often these two MPs they uh, 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 file motions together. So mm. uh, then this motion is named Paul Peters or the motion <laughs> Peters Paul. And uh, this happened uh, earlier this week again. Uh, and this MP Rene Peters, he uh, he he said uh, the yeah he was talking about this motion uh, Peters Paul, and uh, pointed out that it wasn't a about yeah. Paul Peters from Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he actually told the MPs this wasn't you, just kind of masquerading. Or, it wasn't or, me, or, no, it or, was or just his motions. Yeah, like, uh, like somehow, yeah, you've, so, somehow you've taken over Dutch democracy subversively. Yeah, yeah. So now my name is officially in the minutes of Parliament uh, forever. Which is great, um, yeah. Which is great sure. if 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 it wasn't that they misspelled my name, yes, so I, I need to find well. a way to, uh, to 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 correct that. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was <laughs> a little bit surreal. <laughs> yeah, quite weird. Especially if, you, especially if you're actually watching Parliament and you see your own name come up just in the middle of. Yeah, the, I wasn't the, actually watching, but yeah. all of a sudden my phone just blew up <laughs> from people who uh, who who saw it. So yeah, it was it was pretty funny. Right. Okay. We will yeah. link to the video in the liner notes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of honoured to be in the presence of the deputy, ki- the, un- the unofficial king of uh, the Toyota camera anyway. So uh, that's <laughs> not something I expected this week. And uh, yeah, you. Uh, yeah. What are you? Can you repeat what you are? A foul-mouthed Antipodean foul correspondent. Please uh, explain. This well, this refers, um, refers to I think something I posted on Facebook because um, a Dutch researcher had discovered a duck in Australia that had learned to swear. So, <laughs> and that's called Ripper. I don't know why it's called Ripper, but this just makes the story even better. But Ripper um, swims around in Australia going, you bloody fool, the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you actually hear the audio of it, and it's kind do of, you, it's... Uh, 
So Can you actually, did you have audio uh, there is audio, of yeah. this? There is an audio clip of, uh, of Ripper the Duck. Uh, <laughs> and it is, it is undistinguishable that it is... Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty distinct. Well, it's one of those things, right? You know how um, um, there was a court case years and years ago about... Um, uh, um, uh, about, about heavy metal songs having satanistic lyrics or something. It's one of those things. If you if you suggest something, if you suggest you can hear something, mm. and then you play the clip afterwards, then sure enough, yeah. you know your ears are tuned to hear it, and you hear it. So that's, I think there's a certain yeah. amount of that going on. You know, when you hear this kind of warble from the duck, it does. If, if you straight, if you're listening for it, you will hear it say, "You bloody fool." And it's kind of a very yeah. sort of. Um, you, uh, it's you a very can't sort of, unhear it. Yeah, it's a very disappointed sounding. You bloody fool! You know, it's sort of like uh, like the duck has gone off to the supermarket and forgotten to buy flour or something. It's, it's that sort of thing. Ah, you know. But it's uh, <laughs> but it, it's, it's it's quite good when when you hear it. And uh, apparently, it's the first time that um, a duck has been uh, on record as actually imitating how humans talk. You know, they're not hmm. unlike you know minor birds. They're not really famous for it, but it now seems that uh, interesting. And also, apparently, this uh, the, the duck has also imitated the sound of his aviary door slamming. I'm not quite sure how he does that. But, uh. <laughs> okay, that's that's also sounds very interesting. Yeah. Um, all right, and that's now your new uh, spirit animal, isn't it? That is my spirit animal. Yeah, sweary duck. Yeah. Yeah. That's just. Yeah. yeah that, that, that is why I aspire to be in life. Since I'm not going to get mentioned in Parliament, um, yeah, or indeed mentioned in Newsweek, which is uh, brings us on to this week's Opef and our special guest appearance. Hello, I kept my mouth shut for the whole introduction. I want you, you guys to be very did. proud of me. I'm, I am very proud. Thank yeah, you. yes, Molly has joined us. Welcome back to uh, the podcast. It's nice to be back. It was fun to uh, like get ready for the podcast this morning. I was like, oh yeah, this this used to be fun. Not that I'm volunteering to come back, but. Yeah, and apparently you're very missed by our listeners because we we received I think f four or five messages uh, this week alone mm -hmm. that that you are very missed on the podcast. Oh yes, it's nice to know that I am missed. But I think you guys have been doing a very good job since I've been gone. I've been enjoying listening to the uh, to the podcast. Very good. So why did you guys drag me here today? <laughs> so we dragged you out of bed this morning because um, yeah, as almost the whole world knows now, um, you have you have your dog on a very Dutch. Um, high protein diet, yes, and uh, this is uh, this went this flew around the world this week. So I guess, um, yeah, you, you need to explain it to the three people who haven't heard about it yet. I just want to say, you know, I've been back twice for like a guest appearance on the podcast, and both times was in relation to tweets going viral. Because the last time I was here was to talk about the green roof tweet situation. Oh, right. <laughs> so last week on Friday, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a, exactly a week now. At like eight o'clock on Friday night, I walked into the kitchen to discover my boyfriend grating cheese directly into Truby's mouth, <laughs> and it wasn't with. I think a lot of people thought it was like with one of those box graters, but it was actually with like a microplaner. So it's like even yeah. more pretentious and ridiculous somehow. <laughs> what kind of cheese was it? A Parmesan. Because he was right. grating it for the, on top of our dinner. I don't remember what we were eating, some kind of pasta dish. <laughs> and, I, of course, I thought this was really funny. And, of course, like, you know, fucking cheese just gets everywhere. So the cheese is, like, all over the dog. It's all over the floor. <laughs> like, it's a mess. And I, so I tweeted about it. But it was, like, 8 o'clock on a Friday night. So I had, like, very low expectations for anybody sort of engaging with this tweet. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's not, like, peak Twitter time, exactly. And... This was, you know, a couple hours later, we went to bed. The tweet had, like, 60 likes, basically. And I was like, oh, that's pretty good numbers for, like, you know, 8 o'clock on a Friday night for a dumb dog tweet. And <laughs> <laughs> we woke up on Saturday morning. 
And Niels had gotten up before I did, and he came to wake me up. And he was like, so, how do you think your tweet did? And I could tell by the way that he said it that he... That like there was a lot, and I yeah. the things I said to him, and I was like, "Oh, did it get like five hundred likes?" And he was like, "No, it's like sixty thousand." Like, <laughs> so of course I immediately woke up and then had to like deal with you know all of the massive notifications that you get like on your phone. You sort of have to like turn all the stuff mm. off because yeah. it gets really yeah out of control very quickly. And then we just sort of spent Saturday and Sunday kind of just, like, watching the numbers, like, tick up to, like, absurd amounts. So I've gone and looked it up for you guys. And the tweet is now at uh, 278,000 likes. Right. Yeah. 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 It's Ridiculous. astonishing. How yeah. many retweets? Uh, 4,600. Which is mm, wild. Insane. It's just it's completely just amazing. wild. Yeah. yeah. And it being Twitter, of course, it also kicked off a huge argument about whether or not you should, in fact, grate cheese into the oh mouths of dogs. Why are people like this, for God's sake? Yeah. It, it's very funny to me, because, of course, the people, you know, random, like, you know, Karen from Milwaukee, obviously does not know, like, what my situation is with our dog. But Truby is a rescue. Truby has an incredible amount of energy. When we picked him up from the shelter, he was nine months old. And they said, oh, this is just puppy energy. And we knew that this was not puppy energy. He is yeah. now five years old. He has not slowed down at all. Like, he is still <laughs> has... He's insane. And he was, for the first two and a half years that we had him, underweight. We could not get him to... We were feeding him 200% of the recommended dosage for his weight, like, in food, regular food. He could literally eat anything we wanted. We were feeding him, like, high-calorie snacks, like, you know, to, like, do training and stuff with. It was not until, actually, about a year ago that he finally was at the weight that the vet thought was healthy. Like, you can no longer see his ribs. So the fact that people were accusing me of, like, overfeeding this dog, there was a lot of people who were like, one ounce of cheese is equal to eating three donuts. It's, I like, very unhealthy. <laughs> so to help, or to sort of process dealing with those people, Niels and I went to Dunkin' Donuts on Sunday, and I ate three donuts, and I had zero regrets <laughs> about this. And, and that's those people's fault as well. Yeah, we should exactly. Say that. Yeah. Um, so I somewhat passive aggressively posted a photo of the dog on Sunday looking extremely svelte and beautiful outside of the, our house. Um, which at least the guy who wrote this article for Newsweek picked up on my sort of subtweeting of the like judgment people about mm. this the whole weird cheese thing. But yeah, people can get very weird about this kinds of stuff. I think my favorite of all the replies was somebody replying to one of those uh, those objections who said, "Look, they, they they have very short lives. They spend most of it waiting for us to come home. Just give him the fucking cheese, Mary right. <laughs> <laughs> like, The dog is fine. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, there's a, there are some handful of people who were just like, mm, I mean, you really like shouldn't be feeding your um, animals. Like, why are we eating animal proteins anyway? Like, cows have to suffer for this. Like, bitch, yeah, yeah. my dog cannot be a vegetarian. Like, you are on." Drugs. Yeah. Where was so. the weirdest place that Great Gate, as it's inevitably been dubbed, uh, yes. has turned up? Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's really gone. We I think Paul, you found a story in the Hindustan Times about this, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. 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 And on Yahoo and on Newsweek, as we already yeah, mentioned. Yeah, Newsweek did a yeah. story. Yeah. You just if you if you Google in the news section uh, dog uh, cheese, then you will uh, you will get at least five or six. Yeah 
articles about your tweet. <laughs> so it was on, you know, it did the usual rounds. The We Rate Dogs account posted it. It was on Best Social Media NL. You know, it's just kind of like the usual places that these sort of like tweets yeah. end up. And, and it was also fan art. Yeah, there yeah. is fan art. Somebody in the in the comments drew like a sketch of like what they thought the scene looked like, which I really enjoyed. So I've also posted <laughs> that in the thread. Yeah. Uh, are you getting are you getting that commissioned and framed? Uh, yeah, I'm I thinking about would. it. Maybe I'll yeah. reach out to yeah. the artist and see if they want to uh, see if they want to do like a full scale sort of version. We'll put it up yeah. in the kitchen. Could be there. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's how my life has been going. Basically, just you know. That's been your week. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, she's grading. Yeah. yeah. So you you've yes. Yeah, so, so you've had uh, yeah you've had an article about your Newsweek. Paul's been yeah. mentioned in Parliament. Yeah. I don't know what, what I'm going to have to do this week. Life, well, I know. I think I'm going to have to launch a terrorist attack or something because, yeah. uh, you know, to, just to keep up with you. <laughs> yeah, or maybe you could um, you could chase after, you, you could have your laptop stolen by a wild boar and then chase after it naked, like that guy yeah. in Germany did, like, last summer. Yeah, yeah. That would be fitting, that, that I think. Yeah, along the beach or something. Yeah. yeah. Can't have something too serious yeah. on, the, on the podcast. Could be a bit... No, it's got to involve animals, clearly. Yeah, for sure. Because, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I have to get my, uh, harassed by swearing in Australian duck. Or something. Yeah, you could go get harassed <laughs> yeah. by swearing. I mean, you can't get into Australia because of Corona right now. But maybe in no. a year you could go maybe and, the, and the make duck, a pilgrimage. That would make the story even better this if he manages true. to get into Australia. Yeah, sneak yeah. into yeah. Australia to get sworn at by a duck. That would be, yeah, that yeah. would be a. <laughs> If, you know, if somebody called me one day and was like, Gordon, have you heard that Gordon is in jail? And I'm like, wow, for what? Sneaking into Australia to get sworn at by a duck? I'd be like, yeah, that's that. I'm not surprised. Trying to abduct a swearing duck. Yeah. That's the way to go. Abduction. Gate. Okay, well, now that the puns have gotten bad, I'm going to leave you two. I think that's a good point to leave. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you for joining yeah, us. Thanks so for having me back. It was nice to be yeah. here, and uh, yeah, in, good luck in, with the rest of the podcast. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, it was yeah. either asking you back or or discussing the OPEF about uh, uh, protesters wearing uh, stars of David's. Oh, uh, 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 so yeah, it was the choice was uh, very easy very to make. I definitely, we definitely made the, the right uh, choice there. Shit slash bouldering wall in the Twitterkammer. That I feel. Oh, like we did, oh, that, last we did that last week. That was last week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we could also have the dick building. Yeah, the dick building. That's also one. Yeah. You could have had Niels yeah. on. I tried to convince Gordon to have uh, to have Niels and or Truby on for this, but he insisted that it be me. No, Niels was low entertainment value here, sadly. It's <laughs> all about your tweet. <laughs> Savage. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, now that you've called my boyfriend low entertainment value, I'm going to uh, go. <laughs> okay. Enjoy your day. Thank See you. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This week, the coalition talks are still deadlocked, the coronavirus numbers are going nowhere, but Max Verstappen made up for it by hurtling around Zunford faster than anyone else. We also look at the struggles international students are having finding a place to live, and tell you why the king might have to stop hunting high at a blow. Not to be confused with the loo. Indeed, yeah. D66-leader and foreign affairs minister Sigrid Kaag placed a bomb under the already stagnated formation process on Monday when she attacked VVD-leader and prime minister Mark Rutte's style of leadership. 
She didn't mention Rutte by name in the Haye School lecture, but it was clear she was referring to him. She criticized him four times, for example, when she said that we need to learn the essential lessons about shared humanity, trustworthiness, transparency, and effective government. This applies especially to those who shout loudest how gaaf our country is. Gaaf means great and is a very, very, very often used phrase by uh, Rutte to praise the Netherlands. So yeah, it was very clear that she was referring to him when she said that. Yeah. Um, she also criticized leaders who govern without a clear vision. And Rutte often jokes that people with vision need to see an optician. So yeah, it was also, I mean, there were several other occasions in the speech where she uh, clearly mentioned uh, Rutte. Yeah. But, uh, it was full of yeah, oblique was, references. Uh, and then uh, Agnette Kach uh, the next day to try to row back and say, oh no, I wasn't talking about Rutte at all. I don't know where he got that idea from, even though absolutely everybody could see she was. And even Rutte himself said in the debate that he, he felt like he was being, you know, he was being spoken of. So yeah, she, she claimed that she was yeah. talking about leadership in general. But yeah. you know, if you if you mention these sort of uh, uh, sound bites, which are yeah. everybody knows is about Rutte, then you know it's very clear that's just an attack on Rutte. Um, so yeah, in, indirectly, Kaag is blaming Rutte for the failed formation process. Uh, and informateur Hamer concluded last week that a majority cabinet is no longer possible. The VVD party and finance minister Wopke Hoekstra CDA rule out a coalition with two left-wing parties. That's the preferred combination of Kaag. And D66 in turn rejects the continuation of the current coalition with ChristenUnie. And that's preferred by CDA and VVD. In other words, uh, deadlock. Mm. Uh, Hammer advised in her concluding report to the Tweede Kamer that a minority cabinet of two or three parties remains the only option. And until now, everyone assumed that VVD, uh, CDA and D66, uh, collectively they have 73 seats, would form the basis for a coalition. But, you know, after Kaar's remarks, it remains the question if she would be willing to even join this so-called motorblok. Um, and also ChristenUnie leader Gert-Jan Segers came out publicly criticizing other parties. He posted uh, a blog on Facebook uh, this week in which he accused PvdA and GroenLinks uh, of blocking his party from negotiations. Uh, and he criticized VVD and D66 for not having an eye for people in this country who need help. Um, in other words, the formation process hasn't become easier this week. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, and it's interesting that uh, Kaag didn't mention Rutte by name in uh, these uh, has in her lecture, but she did mention one uh, party leader uh, by name, which was uh, Gertjan Segers, briefly. Uh, not, not, uh, not in a critical way, but that was interesting to me, basically because um, uh, she, she talked about Rutte, obviously in a very roundabout, well, not very roundabout way, uh, in a slightly oblique way. She mentioned Segers, but there's no mention at all of Wopke Hoekstra. Like, he's just yeah. become a kind of passive partner now in this coalition building process. I was fascinated that when they had the debate on Tuesday about... Um, Hammer's reports and how they go forward. I think Hoekstra got one question. Like, no one cares, yeah. basically. They just assume the CDI are going to tag along. Yeah, and CDI is just uh, sort of... Uh, it, it's there, but nobody's really paying attention to it or you know he's not the the main character in this soap uh, to yeah. say the least he's just uh, basically assumed to be you know tagging along with Rutte we just assumed this but it's it's not near um, guaranteed of course but we just assume it and yeah it's uh, it's it says a lot that nobody is uh, talking about the CDR um, 
Well, for now, because, you know, um, yes. Pieter Omzicht will return to the uh, Tweede Kamer uh, uh, next week. Um, we will talk about that later in this segment. But, uh, you know, that would uh, m- might bring back the spotlights to the CDA party. Possibly, yeah. In the meantime, though, I mean, Marietta Hamm has now wrapped up her um, not entirely successful attempt to find a new cabinet. And there's uh, a new informer has come on board. Uh, so, so who is uh, this uh, mystery person? Well, this mystery person can only be one person, yes. right? Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's of course uh, uh, professional crisis manager Johan Remkes. Indeed. Um, on Tuesday, after Chair Vera Bergkamp officially opened a new temporary Tweede Kamer building, uh, Parliament debated Hamer's concluding report. Uh, Kaag didn't say whether or not she wanted to uh, uh, join a minority cabinet, and Rutte clearly said that he actually don't want one. So yeah, it's also, uh, uh, you would think, why are we continuing with this minority cabinet idea if nobody wants it? But uh, mm. okay. Uh, nonetheless, Rutte proposed to appoint, indeed, Johan Remkes as the new informateur. Uh, he is given the task to investigate a minority cabinet as uh, advised by uh, Hamer. Uh, Rutte's motion passed, but wasn't supported as broadly as he had hoped. And also GroenLinks and PvdA said in the debate that they would not easily give support to a minority cabinet if it might come to one. Um, the next, for the very next day, uh, Remkes already started his job. Uh, he, he also said that he didn't rule out that he will be able to forge a majority cabinet after all, so he's very ambitious. Uh, yes. He met with all six political party leaders on uh, Wednesday and on Thursday, uh, and he also immediately threaten to quit if they aren't going to actually start <laughs> negotiating soon so yeah, yeah. it's uh, um uh, he, he he's not a very patient man uh, no. to say the least yeah i, th- I think he's uh, yeah t- definitely trying to um yeah um light a fire underneath this the, this, this rather uh, process has gone a bit cold lately um yeah it's kind of curious that uh, like you say there is basically a majority for having a majority cabinet but the yeah. the parties that could make a majority don't want to talk to each other it's no, it's yeah. quite strange. And it doesn't seem like there is so much. I mean, they there is so much common ground between these parties yeah. uh, on 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 the major problems that we have in the country on stickstuff on corona on uh, yeah. on the economy i mean there is uh, the housing crisis i mean sure uh, 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 they don't agree on 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 100% but there is so much common ground to 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 you know start forming a coalition yeah and faith um, and disaster have basically written a coalition agreement now but they just can't find the other parties to sign get the other parties to sign up to it and even yeah, though Koenings and, and PvdR said, yeah, most of this looks great. There's not a lot we want to change. And I also think that uh, 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 on certain topics, Desa-Sester and Christenuni are very, very far away from each other. But, you know, on social economic issues, uh, uh, migration. climate, migration, they are, they are natural allies on these topics. So I don't see why... Um, Sigrid Kaag is so unwilling to 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 even negotiate with the ChristenUnie. Um, I, I think they are m- more uh, more more of an ally than they than they realize. Yeah, I think so. And then the, the especially strange because they did actually work together in the last cabinet pretty successfully. And yeah. all that happened was yeah. they had this non. It's basically don't want to have this non-aggression pact again that they had where they agreed that Desus and Zesta wouldn't bring in any laws on euthanasia or abortion. Yeah, and Christendini wouldn't uh, bring in any yeah, laws on things that Desus and Zesta uh, don't, uh, uh, don't want to shift, like, um, <coughs> like like prostitution. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think the uh, I think we agree on that we don't understand uh, why uh, these these parties are just not starting to negotiate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because you know we see a lot of possibilities <laughs> and options for them to uh, to to uh, uh, fruitfully work together in the next uh, four years. Um, but yeah. Uh, the reality is, uh, unfortunately, that this is uh, this is not the case, and we might get stuck with a minority cabinet, and that will bring a lot of troubles, uh, especially because Magrutte is already so vulnerable or has proven to be so vulnerable in Parliament uh, in the past six months, and uh, yeah, having a minority cabinet. Uh, yeah, it's basically almost a guarantee that at some point he will be sent away by yeah. uh, by the Tweede Kamer. Especially as the parliamentary inquiries into the Tuslaken affair and Kronio are coming up as well. So that's going to add more um, spice into the mix. Exactly, yeah. yeah. These, these will definitely not be boring times, but from a uh, from a uh, stability point of view, uh, I think we are uh, in trouble. And uh, Hammer also is warn- warning against that. She yeah. also fears that uh, because of how the, the, the political leaders are, uh, uh, with the positions they are taking uh, and their unwillingness to, to cooperate together is, is dangerous for the stability of, of yeah. the country. Yeah, so in the middle of this unstable situation, the last thing you really want is for one of the leading parties to have one of their <laughs> maverick members come back into parliament <laughs> as an independent <laughs> member, I guess. So uh, is that happening? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what's <laughs> happening. Next week, Peter Omzicht will return to the Tweede Kamer. Uh, remember, he stepped out of the CDA party in the summer. Uh, he was crucial in uncovering the child benefit scandal in the past years, uh, which ultimately led to the cabinet's resignation in January. Uh, and he was almost elected as leader of the CDA party. Uh, he narrow, narrowly lost that election from Health Minister Hugo de Jonge, uh, who decided not to lead his party after all in the election because he had to focus on the pandemic. And buying shoes. And when will when will he start focusing on the pandemic, Gordon? Do we know that? Or? I don't know. I don't, I've looked in the diary and I can't find it. But um, hmm. hopefully soon. Uh, the party then handed the leadership to Finance Minister Wopke Hoekstra, uh, bypassing uh, Omzicht. Uh, remember, Hoekstra didn't even stand, uh, 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 didn't even run for the leadership. Mm. Um, and Omzicht managed to uh, win almost 40% of the CDA votes in the general election of March, uh, which was pretty unprecedented. Uh, and it shows how popular Pieter Omzicht is in the country, especially for his work in the child benefit scandal. Um, nonetheless, the CDA lost one third of its seats and an internal commission was formed to investigate the loss, uh, but a confidential memo written by Omtzigt for the commission was leaked to the press. Gordon, do you remember how many pages this memo was? I think it was 76. In fact, you know what? Yes, I've got it open on the 70s. tab on my screen. I still haven't read oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I opened it up on the do- on the day after it leaked, and um, yeah, I've I, I, I still it's got still a there. note. To, yeah, it's still there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, 73 uh, from the top of my head, but it was yeah. something in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, Peter Omtzigt was at home. He was on on sick leave because he was overworked and you know what do you do when you are resting uh, you write a 70 uh, plus page memo uh, about everything that makes you unhappy about your party um, it was a little bit of a bomb indeed because Omzicht uh, wrote uh, about you know everything that he felt was wrong with the party uh, about the culture about the leadership and he also accused the party of corruption remember that yes um, 
And he uh, described that he often uh, didn't feel welcome or valued in his party, even though, you know, uh, despite the work and uh, the hard work he had done in the past years. Um, the leaking prompted Omzicht uh, to step out of the party and uh, announce that he would continue as an independent MP. Uh, as I said, he will return next week. Uh, and in an interview with Tubansia newspaper, he said he will focus on a new administrative culture, the housing crisis and uh, other topics as well. Uh, and he also said that he will not start a new party, which I think comes uh, very much as a relief for the CDA party because it will mean that other members will not be able to uh, officially uh, step yeah. over to Omzicht's new party uh, because it's not existent. So that's no, probably but at least there'll be a thorn in the side. And of course, uh, this whole episode has led to a special congress this week where the CDR members are going to give Fokker Hoekstra a very hard, hard time this weekend, just say. It's uh, it's tomorrow, yeah, on yeah. Uh, September 11th, uh, yeah. which might be a... <laughs> Slightly inauspicious, possibly. Yeah. yeah. When it was announced, this uh, this conference, it was there were very high expectations. Uh, these seem to have, uh, 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 yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't hear so much about the Party of Congress anymore. So I don't know if, if we can actually expect a lot of firework. Uh, but uh, yeah, we will. Uh, we're gonna have to wait and see. And uh, if there is firework, we will definitely. Hopefully, there will be a lot of opf because the last uh, <laughs> uh, party conference in 2010, uh, this this um, uh, uh, legendary yes. uh, party conference uh, about the gedoog uh, construction with yeah. the PVV. Uh, we, we are all hoping for a um, uh, for a revival of that. But yeah, I repeat that. I'm, af- I'm afraid we will not. See, it will not be as spectacular. No, we saw such a big bin fire. You haven't. You haven't ordered in Delft's entire stock of popcorn for this weekend then I naturally I always have a lot of popcorn <laughs> on stock here but uh, uh, I, I am uh, I didn't uh, I, I didn't feel like I had to uh, uh, make a uh, emergency uh, order no no so the question everyone on Twitter seems to be asking at the moment Paul is are there going to be new elections what do you think uh, I, I I generally think that nobody wants it because, yeah. um, uh, I mean, the VVD uh, party is growing in the latest polls, but all the other parties are uh, uh, losing seats or mm. are at least um, uh, uh, not growing as much. Uh, so I don't think... Uh, what would be the result of new election? We would probably have even more fragmented uh, 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 parliament, which would make the... Um, uh, the coalition forming even even more um, difficult than it already is. Um, I don't think anybody wants it, and it would also be, I think, a sign that uh, yeah. it would prove that the Hague is dysfunctional because you know the Netherlands is a coalition country. We always manage to to find a a, a manage to 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 build a coalition, uh, and if there wasn't a majority, we would also find uh, new partners uh, after very lengthy uh, uh, negotiations, of course. But you know we always manage to find one, and yeah. if we. Uh, this is the nuclear option, right? New new elections, and it mm. would definitely be. Uh, I think it would be a very uh, it would be enormous shame that uh, 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 if we will get new elections, and also. Um, yeah, I heard someone say on Twitter, "We're not Italy or Belgium." I mean, we <laughs> we gonna, we don't need new elections to uh, to form a government. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, uh, I, I, I agree with you. I think um, uh, the, the, uh, it would hugely erode trust in the whole democratic process, first of all. I think Rutter's aware of that. But also, like you say, I mean, the Fefe Day would po- probably gain a few seats, but the CDR would be almost wiped out, I think, given the state they're in at the moment. They're, they're a real danger. And that's his preferred, number one preferred go-to partner, 
So then they yeah. wouldn't be an option, possibly as a coalition partner, which set, actually sets him back, even though he's got more MPs in his own party. And then Deza Zestuch, who would all, also likely lose seats, would they want to par, par, still pair up with him? I think it would make it harder for him to find partners than it is already. And a lot of the vote, the other danger is a lot of the votes may well go as protest votes to some of the really small parties, things like the Boer and uh, you know, the Farmers Party, the Boer Bürgerbewegung. Exactly. Um, yeah. And he doesn't want to do deals with those kinds of parties either. So I think that would give him even more limited options he has now. Right now, he has three parties which uh, have 72 MPs, four short of majority. So actually, he's got a lot of options for finding another party to pass his legislation. And on most uh, most areas, one of the parties um, uh, in the opposition will probably vote with him. So Hun Links will back a lot of the green um, energy transition plans. Pei will back a lot of the welfare uh, state reforms. Chris Sununi, um, Yain and Twintech even, well, you know, he will be able to piece together, I think, the majority for most pieces of legislation. I think so too. But yeah, as we said, uh, 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 I, I think from a practical point of view, um, uh, a, a minority cabinet is, is always possible because, you know, you will always find a coalition on certain topics. But, you know, for stability, uh, from a stability point of view, Mark Rutte will not want it because he is already so damaged as a politician and he will be easily be sent away f- uh, by the Tweede Kamer if no, something happens. That's true. Happens. Yeah, but, but I think um, new elections now would make the situation even less stable than it is right now. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, let's not... Ho- I mean, the, these parties just need to remind themselves that uh, 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 the current coalition gained seats. That is a clear sign by the voters that, you know, they are happy with the current government. And I think they should just continue um, uh, continue the, the current coalition because, you know, it is unprecedented that a coalition wins seats. It never true. happens. Yeah. So uh, I think the voters are are clear in uh, in their message and um, yeah, just uh, get 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 back to work, uh, people. It's uh, <laughs> yeah. it's six months now uh, since exactly. the election. We're tired of it. Yeah, stop bickering. Speaking of things we're really tired of, experts are warning that the return to school could trigger an upsurge in coronavirus infections later this autumn. The latest figures from the RIVM show that one in eight infections are now linked to a school or a daycare centre, which is double the proportion at the beginning of June. And the 10 to 14 age group accounted for the largest number of new infections last week, while only around 30% of children over 12 are fully vaccinated. Aura Thiemann, head of the National Infectious Disease Control Centre, said there was likely to be an increase in cases during the autumn, and we'd have to wait and see if it turned into a full-blown wave, and whether social restrictions will be needed again. Health Minister Hugo de Jonge is due to announce the next stage of the government's pandemic response on September the 20th, and he said he will be looking to relax the rules further, if numbers are favourable. And there has been some controversy about vaccination this week, right? Yes, uh, particularly around vaccination at work. Um, Now people are going back to the office, a lot of employers are saying they want to know if their staff are vaccinated, and a lot of staff and unions are saying that's none of your business, basically. So around 7 in 10 companies say they want to know if their staff have uh, had the vaccine, which of course is against the law on confidentiality of medical information. But bosses argue they have a duty to provide a safe place to work. So these two rights are conflicting, and it's leading to all kinds of yeah, some difficult conundrums to resolve. Like, for example, if you work in, you know, at an entertainment venue or something, then you have to ask your customers if they've had their vaccines, but you can't ask your staff. That kind of thing. So, yeah, the advisory body AVVN, they carried out this survey and uh, said the government needs to provide some kind of clarity on the situation. 
The largest employers organization, Feyeno NCV, says there should be a temporary change to the law so that people working in some sectors where there is a high risk of infection can be asked about their vaccination status. That applies mainly to people working in situations where it's not possible to socially distance. And some companies have been talking about bringing in compulsory vaccination policies. So car company Leaseplan said this week it would only let fully vaccinated staff back into the office. And a leaked memo from Shell that was reported in the Financial Times said the oil giant could make vaccination mandatory for some of its workers, like offshore staff, but it probably won't apply to the 8,000 people working for Shell in the Netherlands because of the high vaccination rate here. Hmm. Yeah, it seems... Um I mean, I understand the debate, I understand the conflict, but still, it seems to seem to me a little bit weird to, you know, have your employer uh, basically force you to get some sort of medication. It's just, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I am, uh, I'm still not clear where I stand in this, uh, in this debate. Yeah, I think it's a very difficult one to resolve. So, like I say, it, 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 they're arguing that it's, um, it's a safety measure. Obviously, there are some places where I think you would expect. Um, everyone to be vaccinated like if you work in healthcare if you work in a hospital you shouldn't be putting your patients in danger so i can see the argument there but yeah but for other lines of work i think the presumption has to be that you you know people have you respect the you know people's right to keep their medical information confidential i think that's setting a dangerous precedent but maybe there are some areas where you know the the, the where the safety of uh, protecting people particularly vulnerable people like patients in, you know, um, elderly care homes or hospitals, um, uh, takes precedence. It's yeah, I, I think also we should take into account the, um, uh, the 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 percentage of vaccinated people here in the Netherlands. Uh, is it really that mu- is that big a problem? Um, we should take a look at that. Yeah, uh, I think uh, because if it's not, then you know this debate doesn't really matter. If we st- if we already have enough people uh, 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 who are vaccinated, then the rest is also protected. So m- maybe we should also take that into account. Um, and uh, uh, that could uh, also lead then then we can avoid a lot of awkward situations on in the workplace and uh, 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 in other areas i think um, yeah i don't I, I i mean do we do you know from the top of your head what the vaccination uh, rate is in the netherlands do you know that uh, i don't but it's written down right here in the next in the next oh. sentence of the script so uh, i can tell you that around 64% oh. of the whole population including 70% of adults are now fully vaccinated um, and that's obviously they started with the elderly, um, the, the older age groups. So I think, off the top of my head, I think in the younger population, like under thirty, uh, the rate is uh, somewhere in the fifties now. So it yeah, is creeping so it's up. Not, um, yeah, it's creeping up. It's very slowly in the past months. Uh, I saw. Yeah, it has um, slowed down definitely. It has slowed down significantly. Um, so yeah, I don't think uh, this is this is a high enough percentage to 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 to. Uh, say that the the whole population is to avoid this this the the H word of herd immunity, um, but this is not uh, not nearly enough to to protect everyone. I think no, no, not in the moment. And of course, there's the big regional differences as well. So you know, in some parts of the Bible yeah. Belt, um, like in Urk, um, only twenty percent of people have got uh, have got the vaccine. Um, yeah. And in places like uh, Rotterdam, uh, the the vaccination rate is somewhere around forty to fifty nine percent in some communities. 
uh, especially you know more more excluded communities, uh, ethnic minority Which communities. Which is even a bigger problem because Urk is of course a, a, a small village, but Rotterdam yeah. is, is is a big city, and so you, exactly. you 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 don't want that percentage to be so low in such a highly densely populated uh, area. Yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, the case numbers are still actually pretty high. I mean, they're hovering around the two thousand five hundred mark. Yeah. And in the RIVM's latest weekly report, they went up by 2%. So, I mean, th- they've leveled off for the last uh, week or two, but they're not really going down either. I think uh, I've only kind of, yeah, and um, the, the, the percentage um, of positive tests is slowing, it, it, it's sliding downwards slowly. It's about 10% now. But even so, I mean, I think uh, when you look at the fact there's still 650 odd people in hospital and 200 in intensive care, we're in a situation where, you know, um, the numbers are still high. Uh, they're not really moving downwards, and yet the cabinet is uh, saying that um, you know that, that everything's getting better and we can relax the rules. Um, I'm not really yeah, comfortable with that uh, because I think the point is, it, this time last year we started we had the start of the second wave and we're from a much lower position, and we ended up in quite a crisis point. And although we have the vaccine now, if uh, if a wave starts from where we are. You know, we only have to yeah. double the numbers twice and get up to 10,000 infections a day again, which is, you know, which causes a lot of problems. We will uh, not get rid of Corona in the near future. No. Unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. Universities and colleges started this week, but hundreds, if not thousands of foreign students are still hunting for a place to live in the Netherlands. In Groningen, for example, some 600 students have contacted volunteer organization Shelter Our Students, which tries to find temporary accommodation and lodgings for them. The University of Twente has even gone so far as to recommend foreign students not to come to Enschede because of the shortage of places to live. Also, you just shouldn't go to Enschede in general. In in general, (laughs) just avoid Enschede in general. But if you if you really want to study at the technical university, just go to a real one, uh, preferably Delft. Eindhoven might be your uh, a second choice, uh, only if there's no place anymore in Delft. Yeah, yeah. I hope our loyal listeners in Enschede aren't offended by that. Uh, I've been to Enschede <laughs> once or twice. It's just not I've, not a dreadful town, but uh... I've never been there, so I don't know. The search for housing is an annually recurring problem, made even worse by the fact that international students are often not welcome in Dutch student houses. Many advertisements for vacant rooms on Facebook or specialized websites come with the No Internationals or Dutch Only Proviso, which quite possibly breaks uh, anti-discrimination laws. And the thing almost certainly does. Actually. And this is actually, this happens also in Delft very often. I don't mm. think that in Delft in particular there is a huge shortage in housing. So we have a lot of uh, these student uh, complex recently built i believe international students are offered a place in one of these uh, uh, buildings for one year and so they have one year to look for a a place themselves Uh, i think that's the practice here in delft but yeah definitely not the same could be said for other cities where it's a real problem uh, to 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 find places uh, to live for international students so how many international students are there in the Netherlands? Uh, 13% or 15,000 students at Dutch uh, universities come from abroad. Uh, this number has been increasing the last couple of years and coupled with the already existing shortage in student houses, um, yeah, the problem uh, has only intensified recently. Uh, the student union LSVB says it receives an enormous amount of emails from international students who cannot find anywhere to live uh, and also about the uh, Dutch-only trend. Uh, the union says we really need more housings 
for this group, um, estimating the shortage to be at least 22,000 rooms uh, in total. It's not uncommon for international students to stay in Airbnbs or in other expensive accommodations. And also, I, I believe in Delft and in other cities, you have these uh, uh, student hotels, uh, which are basically, uh, it's cheaper than a regular hotel, but it's basically a hostel, yeah. And uh, it's also not cheap. So yeah, it's... Uh, and not really suitable if you're actually studying. I mean, that's fine if you're just traveling abroad with a backpack. But if you're actually yeah. trying to do some work, it's not really the right kind of accommodation. Yeah, imagine having to stay there for two years. It's, uh, yeah, it's so expensive. And earlier this week, LSVB, together with political parties PvdA and GroenLinks, called on Housing Minister Kaisa Olongren to do more to solve the student housing shortage. If you appreciate our efforts to keep up with Max Verstappen, Molly's Twitter numbers, or Johan Remkes's amorphous CV, why not sponsor <laughs> the Dutch News podcast on Patreon? For as little as one euro a month, you can help us to help you keep up to date with what's going on here in the Netherlands. We can't guarantee you a name check in the Trader Karma or in Newsweek, but we can give you the next best thing, which is a shout out on this podcast and the chance to ask us a question. This week we say hello to new patron Katarina Katarina, who is uh, from Ukraine. Nice name. Yes, yeah, so so good, uh, so good. They named her twice, as the old joke goes. She might she might become a, a very good uh, speed skater or a uh, yeah. or a uh, field hockeyer, possibly or a D sixty MP. That that actually would uh, would be a very good fit. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. She says, "I love your show. It somehow makes the stressful news less stressful and lets me stay somewhat up to date with what's happening around me." Uh, she's a software developer from Ukraine, uh, has been in Amsterdam since she moved uh, three years ago and plans to stick around for a while. Um, so uh, there we are, doesn't have any questions for us, uh, but thank you very much, uh, Katerina, for your support and keep listening and uh, glad that we can relieve some of the stress of uh, watching politicians uh, sulk <laughs> and refuse to talk to each other. We've also got some feedback uh, on last week uh, from Andres uh, Silecki. Um, Andre uh, was uh, listening to our discussion about uh, you know, holidays and the fact that uh, the country kind of shuts down in August and the whole building sector going on holiday en masse. And he says, uh, with so many holidays here, up to 38 a year, that's often the best solution to allow everyone to take it in the summer. So for manufacturing and construction companies, it's either everyone shuts down totally and go on a mandatory holiday for two or three weeks, or you kind of limit when people can take holidays. So, yeah, I can see the kind of uh, sense in which that's uh, a convenient option, actually, uh, yeah. rather than everyone kind of sprinkling their holidays over the year. And then you've got uh, staff shortages on site. But he says, I, don't, I think, still think it's not as extreme as in Italy, where normal life just doesn't function in July. Or in the other months. Or in the other, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or, yeah, <laughs> or indeed in Belgium, where things just uh, yeah. never function at all. No. Andre also says, P.S., bring Molly back. So glad that we yeah, made your wish well, come true, Andre. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, 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 if you've ever been to Italy in July, then you, then you truly understand why uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know public life just doesn't function, because it's just too hot. Yeah. If you'd like to become a sponsor of the Dutch News Podcast and be almost as famous as Paul or Truby, log on to www.patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash Dutch News N-L. So we've got a lot of sports news to bat through this week, uh, but we start once again in Zandvoort, where Max Verstappen powered to victory in the Dutch Grand Prix on Sunday. Verstappen started on pole position, and uh, that proved decisive on the narrow twisting circuit. World champion Lewis Hamilton had to settle for second place, and also lost his lead in the Drivers' Championship in the process, although he did limit the damage by claiming a point for the fastest lap. 
Hamilton congratulated his rival, saying he was just too fast, while Verstappen was visibly relieved to have lived up to the expectations of 70,000 fans, all wearing orange t-shirts and uh, spraying like orange dry ice into the, into the sky <laughs> and roaring him on. He said, quote, I'm so happy I could win and take over the lead. Yeah, just imagine the pressure he must have felt, right? I mean, it's the yeah. first Dutch Grand Prix in 30 years. The atmosphere was really... Uh, Yeah, it was like a festival. We we can't name it a festival, but it felt like that, (laughs) to say the least. Um, uh, He has pole position. He had a chance to take over the leadership in the World Championship. I mean, imagine the pressure and he just does it. He won the race. It was amazing. And everyone who wasn't... The weather was so perfect, by the way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, we had such a terrible summer, but this weekend it was was just perfect. Um, No snollebollekes. Uh, <laughs> at the Grand Prix, yeah, everything fell into place, didn't it? It was it was the perfect uh, accumulation of the weekend. Do you know who? Um, what was the best result for a Dutch driver at the Dutch Grand Prix before this weekend? Uh, no, I don't. I think the best finishing position before then was sixth. Oh, really? So he also broke this record. Yeah, yeah, he was. It's the best. Uh, yes, first time a Dutch driver has actually won the Grand Prix at Zandvoort. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, did you watch the Grand Prix? Uh, on I did Sunday? actually watch it. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, it was available for everyone. Uh, yeah, Ziggo uh, made in it the Netherlands. Uh, free to air for for the whole country. Yeah. So yeah, yeah and, and it, it was. I mean, there, obviously, there been a lot of uphef in the in the build up and a lot of disgruntled people saying you know it was the, the venue was wrong uh, and obviously we're still in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic while we're having a mass public event i think you can still have all those arguments but as a spectacle i think it was pretty you know uh, it, it was pretty flawless yeah it was a great success and there was also a lot of praise for the organizers too right yes uh, because uh, yeah after all the yeah, all the concerns and all the discussion uh, in advance of the event I think the general view was as a sporting event, it went off pretty well. I mean, certainly a big contrast to the 1980s when Bernie Eccleston just got fed up with the fact the Dutch wouldn't pay 200 guilders for a <laughs> ticket and uh, took his circus away. This year, the stands were absolutely packed. Uh, the drivers were full of praise for the revamped circuit. Lewis Hamilton said it's now one of his favourite circuits. And um, yeah, it did pretty well, uh, given that it is Formula One, on the green credentials because uh, only 2% of spectators came by car. Everyone else got the train yeah. or, or cycled to the circuit. So you yeah, a weird... carless Grand Prix. Uh, who could have imagined that? And if you've ever been to a Grand Prix, then you know that you know you're always when you when you when you uh, go home, you you're always in in in, in a traffic jam for hours yeah. and hours and hours. And this is just amazing to see. And also the uh, the 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 drivers and the journalists, they were amazed to see that nobody came by car. Almost nobody came by car. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, uh, from that point of view, it was amazing. And we always thought, everybody thought that this is going to be a a, a logistic disaster. Yeah, uh, you know, having seventy thousand people go to Sandford is is just uh, impossible. Yeah. But uh, also a lot of praise for the NS uh, who did very well with um, uh, with the yeah. trains uh, from Harlem to uh, to Sandford. Yeah, they, they they put on extra trains and they revamped the they revamped the station as well, haven't they? So that they made the platform yeah. longer so they can get more people yeah. in. Yeah. So it's finally very nice to see that the Dutch uh, are, after all, good in organizing stuff after all yeah. the uh, corona pandemic disasters and also the um, uh, the Afghanistan evacuations, yeah. for example. It's just nice to see that we still have it in us to, uh, <laughs> if we just have enough time, yeah. 
we can organize stuff. Yeah, and then given the total failure to form a government as well. You still put a car race on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was also other sporting uh, action this week, wasn't there? Yeah, it's been a fairly busy sporting week. Um, lots of football, lots of goals. Uh, Orania are in pole position in the World Cup uh, qualifying group uh, after resounding home victories over Latvia and Turkey. Uh, Memphis Depay, he scored five of the ten goals in the two games, uh, and he's now on 33 international goals, which is the same number as Johan Krauf, which uh, I thought was quite astonishing. There was Lopev as well at the Latvia game, when a 13-year-old boy called Amin leapt over the hoardings and ran towards Memphis and got a selfie with him. And Memphis uh, very politely so stood and posed for it, uh, which I thought was kind of, actually quite nice. Um, yeah. But the Canfe Bay didn't see the funny side. They slapped Amin with a 100 euro fine and a five-year stadium ban. Yeah, it prompted a lot of other children and people to jump over the fence. So yeah, I understand that the Canfe Bay wanted to stress that this is not allowed and should be punished. But uh, yeah, it still seems a little bit weird that they're fining uh, 13-year-olds uh, and are have no trouble um, traveling to a uh, slave state. Uh, for yes. a uh, football match. <laughs> so, yeah, don't get me started on the Canva Bay. Let's move on to tennis, please. <laughs> yeah, some more cheerful news in tennis. Um, uh, Botic van der Zandtrup made it to the quarterfinals of the US Open, and that's the first time since 2004 when Sheng Schalken, um, the Dutch seemed to have him on, be on a mission to send yeah. the most unpronounceable tennis players to, <laughs> um, and to the Grand Slam circuit. Uh, he knocked out two seeded players uh, on during his run and then went down in four sets to the Russian number two seed, Daniil Medvedev. But uh, given he's now uh, van der Zandschulp has qualified for three Grand Slams this year, it really seems to have been his breakthrough season at the age of 25. Hmm. And his success has propelled him to 62nd place in the world rankings as well. Very nice. He was outside the top 100. And uh, Flushing has a Dutch link as well, right? Indeed, yes. Flushing Meadows named after Flissingen. Or Flushing yeah. is the English name for Flissingen. Yeah, so yeah, one of those many Dutch connections in, uh, in, in New York. And the week began as well with the Paralympic team being welcomed home on Monday. Uh, they finished fifth in the overall medal table in Tokyo with 25 gold medals. That's her best return since Seoul in 1988. Team boss Esther Fahir said she was very proud of both the medal hall and the team's performances. Swimmer Rohir Dosman carried the flag at the closing ceremony after he won three gold medals in the pool. And cyclist Jetsa Platt also won a treble of track, uh, road race and triathlon. Yeah, so a very successful Olympic uh, summer and early autumn for, for Orania, right? Because uh, yeah. yeah, in the summer we did very well and now in the Paralympics uh, too. So yeah, it's congratulations to all the uh, athletes there uh, for bringing all this gold back to, uh, to the Netherlands. Yeah, we, we used to bring back all the silver, but you know, gold <laughs> is also fine. King Willem-Alexander must choose between closing his 6,700 hectares royal estate in the Veluwe for hunting or losing a sizable subsidy for its upkeep. That was decided by caretaker minister Carola Schouten this week. Het Low royal estate is privately owned by the king and is usually closed from September 15th to December 25th. Officially no reason is given for the closure because it involves a private matter, but it is wildly assumed that the royals reserve the period for hunting. Locals, animal protection organizations, political parties and ANWB couples have tried for years <laughs> to keep the Crown domain publicly accessible all year round. Uh, last year, the Tweede Kamer asked the government for clarification about the matter as it was revealed that the king receives a subsidy of 4.7 million euros every five years for the upkeep of Het Loo. Under the conditions of the subsidy, though, the area has to remain open to the public for 51 weeks a year, and that suggests that the king's annual three-month closure is in fact illegal. 
Prime Minister Mark Rutte always maintained that the crown domain was the king's private property, so he's allowed to open or close it when he wanted. But Minister Schouten has now said that from 2022, the king will have to uh, submit to the same rules as any other nature reserve in order to be eligible for the subsidy. And that makes it impossible for the king to hunt there if he chooses to reapply for the subsidy. Hetlo has been in the possession of the House of Orange for centuries. It was acquired by Stadthouder Willem III in 1684, who built a palace and lush gardens there with a fountain higher than in Versailles, before permanently moving to the other side of the channel for another job, for a Funksy elders. Hetlo is scheduled to close next week for what might be the last time. So he's basically got to pay up or shut up, basically, yep. when it comes to hunting. I think it's only fair <laughs> that if he wants to keep killing innocent animals on his estate he does it on his own uh, expenses and not at the cost of the taxpayer yeah yeah definitely yeah it's uh, it, i mean the contra uh, sometimes you look uh, for example to the united kingdom or to belgium or to other countries and just a sharp contrast <laughs> on how we are dealing with our royals here and uh, yeah. <laughs> how it's happening over there i mean remember when the king uh, when when his palace uh, high Bosch, was renovated and he wanted to install yeah. uh, solar panels on the roof and it was just rejected because it <laughs> was a monument and it wasn't wasn't allowed i mean it, this can yeah. only happen in the netherlands i think uh, right in in the united kingdom it would not um, uh, make the queen uh, <laughs> open her private property for uh, for for people it's my, funny my, my first reaction to this story actually i was kind of uh, surprised and a bit shocked that the royals were still hunting in the 21st century but it's one of those classic polite situations isn't it it says don't ask don't tell no one knows and so no one's upset by it and now it's come out that they're still hunting um and that uh, they get a subsidy at the same time yeah and uh, everyone's outraged yeah yeah and they they claim of course that it is for maintaining uh, the wildlife population right yes. and well they kind of just, technically it is yeah technically but, uh, it is of course but you <laughs> but know with silly also, costumes uh, on so but with silly costumes on and uh, with a lot of dogs i wonder if they feed cheese to their dogs yeah so it's a special <laughs> treat I wonder if they grate orange zest in the, directly into the mouth of, uh, <laughs> of the dogs. To prevent them getting scurvy, that'd be good. Rotterdam and Antwerp, along with Hamburg, have become the new focal point of the European drugs trade, according to a new report by Europol. That's not news. I <laughs> already know this. It's a new report by Europol, apparently. They hadn't noticed up till now. Okay, but well. cross-border policing agencies say the North Sea Corridor has taken over from the Iberian Peninsula as the continent's drugs hub. Antwerp is the biggest entry port for cocaine, but most of the shipments are bound for the Netherlands so they can be distributed onwards to the rest of Europe. Um, I'm kind of surprised that the drug dealers are trusting uh, Belgian roads to carry <laughs> their supplies into the, into the Netherlands. It's quite, uh, quite a risky move by them, I think. I'm a little bit offended. Yeah. <laughs> that the drugs criminals they prefer Antwerp over Rotterdam I mean what's that yeah it is a slap in the face it, it really is Dutch customs officers impounded 48,000 kilos of cocaine at the seaports and Schiphol airport in 2020 which is a 24% rise on 2019 so there's one industry that's not been suffering during the lockdown <laughs> no and uh, Europol says the booming drug trade has led to an increase in murder shootings bombings arson kidnappings torture and intimidation yeah it's a big problem it is a huge problem, yeah. So can we officially call the Netherlands now a narco state? Well, there is certainly, uh, as we say, a pervasive problem now right through society. And Dutch News spoke last year to Peter Tops and Jan Tromp, who wrote a book called Nederland Drugsland, spelling out the extent of the illegal drugs trade. It's infiltrated every level of society, basically. You have students being approached in the street to transport packages for 500 uh, euros or even school children farmers are given enticements to let out their land for drug production 
and police corruption turns out to be far more common than we thought. That last aspect was brought up when police cracked an encrypted network used by criminals to communicate and discovered quite a few references to their own colleagues. The authors say the cause of the problem is a combination of the Netherlands' good infrastructure, so it's very easy to transport (laughs) drugs uh, through and beyond the country, the low sentences for drug crime uh, issued by the courts, and, of course, the tolerance policy introduced in the 1960s, uh, which effectively legalised drug use but kept production and supply in the hands of the criminals. So instantly basically created a legitimate market for their business. That applied for marijuana, right? Not for cocaine and other uh, hard drugs. Yeah, indeed. It only applied for marijuana. But of course, the fact they had a legal, you know, that they had a kind of legal outlets for marijuana then gave them a kind of yeah, foot in the... Yeah, it creates an atmosphere that approved of these kind of drugs as well. Yeah, it did. It gave them a kind of legitimacy because the police know who these people are because they're, you know, they are the suppliers to the coffee shops, but they can't regulate them. So there's no way they can say to them, you can't produce cocaine and ecstasy um, because you know there are still uh, criminals they're outside the law yeah so are we an state or not the conclusion of uh, tops and tomp was we're not an state because um oh. we haven't quite got to the point where the state has uh, surrendered control of its own land but um yeah we're kind of getting there well yeah i was going to say <laughs> brabant is close to <laughs> be out of control yeah. <laughs> on so many levels but as you said it's uh it's it's a, such an increasing problem the drug related criminal uh, uh, criminality and it's not no longer an underground criminal enterprise you see it so much uh, more often you see it in in in, in, in general society yeah and uh, so yeah we have to uh, be careful to um, not become an state indeed yeah and you see a lot of influence not just police corruption but also i think local government is now heavily influenced things like planning decisions are hugely influenced by you know by the power and the uh, and the clout that um, these drugs organizations have yeah and of course when you see things like peter de Vries just being gunned down in the middle exactly. of the street yeah. in in you know in the early evening that really brings home how almost untouchable these gangs seem to feel that they are yeah which is still officially not solved or anything but yeah it seems very um, clear from uh, from which direction this assassination comes from that's all we have for you this week this podcast is a production of dutch news which can be found online at dutchnews.nl we'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes and you can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Earn yourself a free shout on the podcast and our eternal gratitude. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Darach, and we'll be back next week.